Hi, everyone, and welcome to Living a Legacy. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Eric Couch. Eric, what's going on? How are you? Hey, Neil, doing great. Man, 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 man. Bring in your daughters, grab your popcorn, because today's podcast is epic. Uh, in the Daughters of Kabani. Now, this is a new book by former political reporter and ABC News and New York Times best-selling author, Gail Samok Lehman introduces readers to an all-female militia. Let me say that again, an all-female militia who took on not, not just a group, but took on ISIS in Syria and won. Strap in, because this is going to be awesome. Gail, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Man, I'm excited. Uh, so, this this so, speaks completely, Eric, to living a legacy. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah, this is awesome. Man, I'm, I'm just like, we've got like an all-female militia just kicking butt in Syria. Um, you know, tell us, tell us kind of a little bit of the backstory and how did you get involved with this? And um, I mean, it's, in, yeah. you all know about stories, right? And about uh, the power of telling stories that connect us. And what happened was a soldier who had been in my second book, which was called Ashley's War about an all women special operations team. Uh, she called me from Syria and said, you have to come see this. You have to come see what is happening on the ground in Syria. There are these women who are battling ISIS and they're leading, they're leading women, they're leading men, and they have huge support from the US military and from the special operations community. And you've got to come tell their story. <laughs> so that was really the opening, uh, really. And the, the thing that's so fascinating for me is how in the world did it come to be that ISIS, this force that bought and sold women, came to face off every single day against women who had women's equality, women's emancipation right at the center of their ideology. And these women fought ISIS room by room, house by house, town by town for a half decade. A half decade. Wow. Yeah. Now, now, these are women who themselves had been oppressed, right? I mean, you know, look, this is interesting because... Uh, you know, my own cultural heritage is, is from a place that there's a, a moment in the book where uh, my father and I are having a discussion about equality. And, I, and, you know, and when somebody told me that actually it was in this slice of northern Syria that it was women who were playing a key role in taking on ISIS and who were not just fighting ISIS, they were really fighting for equality also right alongside the military piece. I said, you, you know, I was absolutely dumbfounded. Right. And the whole yeah. book is an attempt to take readers on that journey with me to understand how in the world the world's most far-reaching experiment in women's equality happened right on the ashes of the ISIS fight brought to you by women who've been fighting these men for, uh, for five years as America's partner on the ground. When you heard the story, Gail, you said, oh my gosh, as a storyteller and a writer, you're like, I got to cover this. I have to go into this. And when you probably first heard it, you said, really, is this seriously true? Right. I'm sure you're thinking that. I did. I mean, I think like everybody else, you think, how in the world did this come to be? And I think every great story starts with a question you can't answer. And the thing that happened when I went finally a year later, 
I was in Raqqa in the former so-called capital of the Islamic State. And it was a woman commander who took us to the front line. And she's acting, and there's a scene in, in, in the Daughters of Kobani where your readers will really come into this. She's acting like she's in, you know, Central Park or, or you know, Dollywood. She's like, oh, you know, look at this and look what they're doing and look what they're doing. And there's a smoking car bomb. They just went off and she's, yeah. you know, we're in kit and, you know, we have our helmets and our vests and, and she has the only thing she has on is a, a scarf for the heat around her head and her, you know, and her AK slung. And she's like, you know, they keep targeting us. Look at what they're doing to us. This is ridiculous. And yet this is her commute to work Yeah, every day. This is what she's living. And they really fought extremism. They fought ISIS on behalf of the world. Now, are these are these women Syrians themselves? Are they from all over the world, or how did yeah. this come to be? So they're Syrian Kurdish women. Um, they're also women from the Christian community who had mm -hmm. watched ISIS um, kidnap Christians in the Khabar Valley, and who then right. were motivated to go defend their own communities. And one young woman, you'll see in the Daughters of Kobani, there's one young woman from the Christian community, and I, I said, asked her maybe the dumbest question uh, anybody has ever asked in an interview, and I said, you know, what what did you think of? when you saw uh, ISIS fighters? Because I think for us in the US, they're an abstraction. They're not like the guy trying to, you know, and the, the guy in the next room. And right. she looked at me and she said, what did I think? I thought I wanted to kill him. She said, you know, they came to kill me or, yeah. I go, or I kill them. And she said, and I'm here to protect my people, my community, defend my land. And you see that, that for them, it was about the purpose of not just their region, but ridding that whole mindset that women could be property, that women could be bought and sold for the world. Well, and you know, as as we've talked about just last week on podcast um, about human trafficking, there's there's more people enslaved today than any time in history. Forty two million people enslaved throughout the world, right? And and the Islamic State, as these as these women are fighting, you know, as you said, you know, they're fighting against men who who trafficked and who enslaved and who killed women, who killed Christians, and it's like they've they've got, you know, you've got to if you're going to enter a war, a battle, you've got to have a cause and a mission, and boy, wow. And you talk about legacy. I mean, when you talk to them about this, and really the. This whole story, the whole Daughters of Kobani book and bringing this to life was about sharing for readers why this mattered to them and why this yeah. matters to the world. These are our allies in the fight against extremism, in the fight against ISIS, and the shared values of wanting girls to be educated, uh, wanting women to have uh, real agency over their own lives. And, you know, it's funny because one of the women I said to her, one of the commanders who was the, the America's partner, the Americans would uh, interface with her multiple times a day in terms of yeah. planning the war against ISIS and Raqqa. And she said to me, I said, why did you want to start a women's, all women's unit, right? You already had equality and you were leading men in battle. And she said, we just didn't want men taking credit for our work. Yeah. Which there's not a woman alive. I don't care where you are in the world who does not understand that sentiment. And they, they really wanted these men to know that uh, women were not going to take it. And in fact, that they would stop the men who bought and sold women. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have a mission. Absolutely. And a purpose. And a purpose. 100%. So where does, okay. So we're talking about, is it, is it Yazidi Kurds? How do you, what's so, uh, I don't say it so the, the Yazidi community um, was a community that both was uh, truly victimized by ISIS. And I mean, in, in really crimes against humanity. When you talk about, right. they went into their community, Genocide. they killed the men, that's right. They killed men and they took women and then they divided oh, them up 
and they trafficked them, right? And, and yeah. these Syrian Kurds who fought them, later young women from that community formed units to fight ISIS. And they, and in fact, I saw them in Raqqa, you know, and you see 20 young women and the book really talks about that. There are 20 young women huddled over a tablet and you think, what are they doing? And then you realize they're uh, helping the Americans to find targets for airstrikes based on what they've seen on the ground. Yeah, how they train themselves. They get trained. They were part of the train and equip. And I hope, you know, you'll, you'll meet in the book, a lot of the men from U.S. Special Operations uh, who in very small numbers helped them work with technology that interfaced with U.S. systems because America provided the air power. And these folks were the fighting force. 10,000 of them were lost uh, uh, to the ISIS fight on the ground. Wow. Yeah, I have, I have a friend who actually has uh, a whole ministry or had, I don't know if he still uh, does, but in Syria, just working with the Kurdish people. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in the early 2000s, my, my sister-in-law, her best friends, college roommates, two of them were in that part of the world and they were on international news because they were held captive for like two months. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we think that this, you know, we, we get caught up and, you know, iPhones and, and technology and life as we know it, but we forget that this is still happening, right? Yes. This is today for a lot of people. Um, that's right. And that's really what the Daughters of Kobani works to do is to take you into that world. What does it look like? You know, there's a moment in the story where they're fighting ISIS and they're in Kobani and one of the women commanders, her mother won't stop calling. So finally she just puts us a phone and you know, so her mother can hear the bullets and she's like, stop calling, I'll call you as soon as it's over, right? Because their families are at stake, right? And everybody yeah. wants to know what's gonna happen. And yet they're now catapulted onto the global stage because this becomes the world's fight, right? ISIS is planning attacks against the US, uh, against Europe in those years. And it's these folks who, you know, whose world we enter who are really doing the fighting on the world's behalf. And that's a challenge for the, also the challenge for the United States to train them, but also a risk, right? Because you just never know. That, that, that one of the daughters could turn on, on, on and join ISIS in a way. So, so the U.S. military are taking their chances as well in this process of training. So I think I really hope readers will uh, enter this world and, and when they read this, we'll see how many folks from the U.S. military were part of this story. They talked to me with for hours and hours with in really unparalleled access to share with me their deep respect. In fact, there's a moment in the, in the book where uh, a special operations soldier whose whole life has been at war, 13, 14, 15, 16 deployments in these post 9-11 conflicts, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, other places. And he says to me, when I watched these young women go off to war, all I could think of was the MacArthur speech, uh, duty, honor country, because these were women who were committed to the fight and to what they were doing in there. And it wasn't that the Americans pushed them into the fight. They were the David versus Goliath in Kobani going up against ISIS and the Americans needed them truly as much as they needed the Americans. So we have this multifaceted thing, right? So Gail, you mentioned she's like in a war zone and her mom's calling her. <laughs> so you've got the whole, um, for one, you know, it sounds like a movie, right? Where it's like, hey, you know, because you're trying to be quiet. I mean, there's bullets flying everywhere. You don't want attention coming to you. And then your phone's ringing. And it's like, you know, you've got all these movies where it's like, okay, now we know where they are because their phone went off, right? So you have that. And then you have 
war and, and it's, you know, as Americans, we can really connect with fighting ISIS because of September 11th and, and all that's gone on around us. So you have that aspect, but then you have, you have, you know, this much bigger of just women and empowering women, right? Um, and not just a methodology or a movement, but the reality of, I mean, this is like biblical proportions of, you know, in the book of Judges where, you know, the, the one judge, I want to say Deborah, but I'm probably wrong, where she takes out the enemy by putting a stake through his skull, which is pretty, pretty, uh, you know, visual deal in the Bible. But it's like, you know, these these women of just power where where, you know, there's multifaceted of just, hey, I'm a, I'm a woman and my mom's calling me and I want to respect that. But I'm also I'm I'm not just fighting the enemy verbally. I've literally got a gun and I am fighting the enemy. Um, same commander. There's only a, David and Goliath. Well, and this is the thing. It's like David and Goliath, but David is a woman. Yeah. Right. Like she puts her at one point, she puts her AK-47 through the wall and she brushes up against the leg of the ISIS fighter in the oh next room. Right. I mean, they're that when you talk about that's where I think the U.S. special operations folks who are part of this story had such mad respect. And they would say they would go room by room in the kind of that just we haven't seen in a number of years. And they would do it with such commitment. And I think that was what struck me. Um, There's a moment where one of the men from from Army Special Operations says to me, you know, Gail, I watched, you know, 20 young women in a flatbed truck, smiley face socks, fatigues braids, AK-47s going off to fight the Islamic State, some of them hugging each other and smiling. He said, you know, and I had this mix of feelings and you'll see in the book, he says, you know, I had a mix of envy because I wanted to go with them, but we couldn't because of the rules of engagement, Uh, awe, respect, um, kind of jealousy because I wanted to go. I'm a trained soldier. This is what I trained for. And I couldn't go to the yeah. front. And I think seeing that as alongside these women who are fighting, not just for, for equality, but for a community in which People had freedom to practice their faith. People had freedom to practice uh, their holidays, to speak their language, to name their children what they would wish, right? Where they could be in a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-faith society. That was what was motivating them. The military piece was a means to the end. Well, and that they're, that they're, they're fighting for something so much bigger than them, you know, for, for their, for their unborn future six or eight year old daughter, that doesn't have to marry a 60 year old man. I mean, that's what's going on in that part of the world. Literally eight year old brides. And it's like- Yeah, and you see so, so many of these young women are just agents of change, right? Yeah. To your point, like they're homegrown agents of change and they have been pushing in their own families in their own societies, like women here, right? They have been pushing for change and, and to rewrite the rules that govern their lives. And I think the thing that was so moving was uh, at the end, this one commander who's seen so much war and so much inhumanity. Yeah. Uh, and you said at the end of the book, I asked her what, what she would say a girl to a girl born 20 years from now. Yeah. And her message is, we did this for you. Yeah. We did this so that you, oh no one could forget. And that's really what the daughter of is about. How did this story change your life? <laughs> I mean, you know this from telling stories. I think every story, uh, every book I've written has changed me. The first book I wrote was about a teenage girl whose business supported her family under the toll line. This book just I moved me in the sense that I've never seen women more comfortable with power anywhere in the world and less apologetic about exercising it. And that came from 
having put everything on the line mm -hmm. and won. Wow. Okay, so so other question. Yeah. What is what is Kabani? So it's the daughters yeah. of Kabani. So it's a little town uh, in uh, northern Syria, right on the Turkish border, that very few people outside had ever heard of before it gets catapulted onto the global stage because ISIS, I mean, it's hard to remember now, but in 2014, ISIS had not had one loss. They had been on a tear. They were producing all their slick videos. We're talking about social media, right? They were right, producing right. all these slick videos and they were terrifying the world and no one knew how they were going to stop them. And then you have this moment where this truly, this David versus Goliath story forms of this ragtag Kurdish militia that is putting up a stand against ISIS and that is fighting to the death to keep them from overrunning their town. And the Americans were trying to figure out how in the world are we gonna fight to stop ISIS without putting US forces on the ground? How are we gonna do this? And they start looking and, and, and re readers will really see the Americans in real time kind of figure out, this is really our best shot is right. pairing up with these people who are already doing that work. Absolutely. Well, and there's a wild difference between fighting for a paycheck and fighting for your life and fighting for the life of your children and your children's children, right? I mean, this has gone on for centuries. And, uh, and for these folks, right, it was really about, um, you talked about the Yazidi community. One, there are a lot of moments where women commanders would talk to me about how they would motivate one another. They were running low on bullets. They were yeah. running low on people and they were running low on food. And the one thing they had was inspiration and motivation. Yeah. And so they would get on the, the radio. One of the commanders, when I was talking about the end, would say, remember what you're fighting for. Exactly. They, Right. Right. Now, is this going to be a story? I could see this as a movie. Is there a yes, the, the screen rights. Yeah. <laughs> We're looking to turn this into a, a series. Um, but really, what's so important to me is that the people who trust me, you know this, right? The, the people who trust you with their stories, that is a responsibility you go to bed with, you wake up with every single day, especially because it's why I'm so happy to be here with you, right? So few people in the U.S. know how much was sacrificed and how much valor and how much love and inspiration came in the fight that that really was done in the world's name. Mm -hmm. So now, am, did I hear correctly that that uh, you know the Clinton our Clinton Foundation has something to do with the you know movie or book or. So okay. not the foundation. So Secretary Clinton's, uh, Chelsea Clinton and Sam Branson, Richard Branson, the entrepreneur, his son, yeah. they have a production company um, and they will be, um, they have the rights to turn this into a series, obviously with lots of folks on the ground who will be right. very right. involved in the new story it is. Although between the Clintons and the Bransons, there should be funding. So uh, I bet, I bet it'll be a great movie. I mean, the story's I mean, amazing. You, this, the, the thing is, it's like you fight so hard yeah. to tell a story, right? With it that it, that takes away the other, where we can all see each other. Like, what would we do in this moment, right? How would we react if this were, if we were up against this? And my job is to make sure as many people see it as possibly can. Absolutely. That's, but I think it's so amazing, and uh, uh, I'm just blown away. I, I think. What do you think? This, this really will help also girls and women that read this book really see that they too can have a voice 
even in sometimes in the United States, sometimes women and girls don't feel they have the voice that that's necessary to see these, how these women fight for their lives, hopefully will motivate all women all over the world that they can be a change, make a change, right? And the women in this story talk about that all the time. We want girls to see us. You know, we want them to know they should own their own power. They should be able to protect themselves and they should be able to advance the rights of others and take care of other people. You can do anything, right? You can do or be anything. You may choose not to, you know, I don't, you know, it's like, I don't have to, I don't have to do this. I don't have to go to war. I don't have to, but I, but I can do that, right? And and telling our telling our daughters, telling our children, um, you know, you can do anything, and that's what's so exciting, because you know them just being empowered, and it's not because someone else empowered them. Although the U.S. is is definitely, but you know, one of the lessons here is, you know, once you once you make the decision that you're going to do something, you know, others will rally around you. Um, you know, one of my favorite, one of my favorite things I, I heard was, was, uh, getting to hang out with Ice-T, uh, a couple of years ago in Carnegie Hall. And, and one of the things that I said is he says, he, he told a story about a friend, but he said, no one wakes up with your dream. Right. Yeah. And that was, he's like, nobody does it. You've got to take action. But once you do, you know, then they'll come around you. And it's like, these women realize, look, nobody's, nobody's coming to save us. Right. And they haven't been. For centuries, we've died, we've been enslaved, we've been in prison, we've been forced into doing things, and they rose up. You know, and the greatest stories, the greatest David and Goliaths are of people rising up, and to have a story of, of women being empowered because they rose up, and then, you know, the, the, the greatest country in the world, right, coming and going and acknowledging that, because you acknowledge um success and you acknowledge so it's just there's so many i mean every every part of our conversation today it's just like there's a million different angles well and i'm so proud right like that that this story is going to be both in military times and marie claire and that it has the endorsement from both admiral mcraven and general botel and elizabeth gilbert who wrote eat pray love you know, and that to me speaks to, right, just how some stories bring us together and also that these folks deserve our attention, you know, and, and it's a story that I think speaks to the universal quest for dignity mm-hmm. and the universal quest for um, a set of values that we're all committed to about, you know, how we live a life that does have justice, that does have dignity, that does have agency, and that where we can serve other people. In our military, the leaders of our military, how they were able to train, they have to be commended for that too, our military. Oh, how- and, and this is the thing is that they, you know, look, they don't typically talk about their work. And they were very careful with me that, you know, we're speaking with you, we're sharing the story because what they did was important and it had valor. And these are people with whom we really felt this deep kinship. You know, these were people who had fought Iraq for years, Afghanistan for years, and Syria for them was deeply personal. Yeah. So what is, you know, what would be their legacy, right? I mean, I, I, I feel like I know it, right? But from their perspective, you know, what is, what is their legacy that they're leaving behind? I guess that's kind of yeah. what, you, what you approached before, but yeah, just... Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So 
General Votel wrote me this beautiful note that said, I had always worried that our Syrian Kurdish partners would not uh, be acknowledged. Yeah. And that this book really captures all that they did perfectly. And that meant the most to me because the truth is that what their legacy is, is that they stopped ISIS for the world. Yeah. And they created the opening for girls born 20 years from now in the region to say, you know what? My auntie was part of that. My yeah. mother was part of that. My, you know, my, my cousin was part of creating a world in which men could not buy and sell women, in which things that ISIS stood for, the barbarity, the terror that they exported would not stand. Yeah. Just, there's, not, there's, there's enough said for me. I'm just, I'm speechless in this. It's unbelievable. <laughs> And uh, Eric, anything else to add to this unbelievable story? You know, Gail, where do we where do we find? I, I don't know. I'm yeah. I'm Neil. I'm with you. I mean, it's just it's incredible. Um, Gail, where do we find out more? So my website is gaillamon.com, uh, and also Instagram at gaillamon, Twitter gaillamon, and then of course you can find the daughters of Kobani any place you buy books, yeah. uh, whether on the Penguin site or of course uh, for folks who prefer uh, independent bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all of the above. And uh, come find me anytime. I love talking to folks uh, who are reading the book. I always love it. We're gonna find you on Clubhouse. Yes, exactly. I'm joining. You. Ready. Ready. Uh, so Absolutely. Definitely find you on Clubhouse. That's the funny thing. Yeah, you can find me on Clubhouse too, Eric. That's the yeah. funny thing. We'll start All of us are on there now. Uh, know, crazy. But that's coming soon because people are probably listening to us saying, Clubhouse? What's this yeah. Clubhouse about? I felt the same thing a month ago. Now I'm glad I did. Well, Gail, we appreciate you're a great storyteller and a tremendous interview and just really provided such great information. So I appreciate you stopping by. Yeah. I appreciate you having me. Great to join you both. All right. Thanks, Gail. Thank great. All right, guys, that was Living a Legacy. Take care. Please listen to the Forletta podcast. Larry Forletta, a retired DEA agent turned private investigator, will bring you true life stories on the war on drugs with some of the most infamous international drug traffickers of all time. To name a few, Pablo Escobar, Manuel Noriega, Joaquin Guzman, a.k.a. El Chapo, and other related real-life crime stories such as Waco. For more information, please visit his website at www.fcisllc.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the COVID-19 Vaccine Show. I'm excited to welcome for Dr. Mark Hayden. Dr. Mark, what's going on? How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. You know, last week we saw you swallowed the latest version of COVID-19 by drinking and also putting it on a cracker. Now, again, we're hearing more and more the virus is deadly. The virus is in a really bad shape. And everyone, the only way we're going to change things is to get everyone vaccinated. Yeah, the virus is deadly to those who don't have an immune defense. Those who don't have an immune defense are those people who lack a normal immune system and never have had immune exposure. Immune exposure comes in, in two patterns. It comes in respiratory exposure, 
where you inhale it and you get pulmonary complications and you transmit it from your lungs to other people. Exposure also comes from having it on your food invisibly because the virus is heavier than air, it settles out. So then when people are speaking, singing, talking, it is going out of their chest and it's just, it is depositing. It's going on your food, on your takeout, on your spoons, on your plates, it's going everywhere. So what I am saying today is use the word exposure, not just cases. Now, this is the first time. You've, you've been hearing COVID for 18 months, some odd. Have you ever heard the word, let's just talk about exposure? Not really. But it's all about exposure. I've got, I'm sharing the screen with you, and this is uh, Worldometers. Uh, it, it is the current, actually it's yesterday's reading. Let's look at USA numbers. Look, USA numbers, total cases, 35 million. Now that's cases. Is that how many exposures we've had? I No way, Jose. Case is defined as somebody who had a positive PCR test or a positive um, antigen test. Right. Let's say you bought takeout during some of the pandemic. The people serving your takeout were breathing COVID virus all over it. Do you wash your salad off? Do you wash your hamburger off when you buy takeout? I don't. I just eat whatever they prepare for me. So you were swallowing virus from your environment because literally it was getting everywhere in the restaurants. It was getting everywhere in your kitchens. It was getting everywhere. Now, when did you have the opportunity to make a case? If you became symptomatic during a pandemic in the United States, you might go down and get tested and have your nose swabbed or your mouth swabbed. Big deal. But if you had no symptoms, you know what you did? You most of the time you saved yourself the money. You saved yourself your time. You didn't go anywhere. So the actual exposures are 10 times probably or not 10 times. They're probably close to six to eight times the actual number of true cases that were positive by PCR or antigen test. Because now, many, people, many, because many, many are asymptomatic the entire that's time. That's right. Now, why in the United States are so few people dying? Look at these new deaths over here. Yesterday, 49. Now, it was well known that the highly transmissible variants were sweeping across the country. We, and we, it was well known that people stopped wearing masks about two months ago. And yet we only have 49 deaths. What happened to the big COVID variant death wave? Well, what happened was simply this. Most of the American population had already been previously exposed to the earlier membrane proteins of the original uh, coronavirus that was being spread. So we had exposure throughout the United States in the prior waves, which made us much less susceptible as a country to death rates. Look at that, 49, look, 49, 49. Remember, there was almost, what, a, a peak load of 4,000, 100 times that? And this is a variant, this variant which has already swept across America. 
it swept across America in, in the beginning of June and July. It's already passed through your state. They, so you're thinking there was an agenda by having people take all their masks off to get a few more cases so no, I, that they push the vaccine you know, more. I, I don't want to use words. People were so sick of wearing their stupid mask. And the mask didn't work on an aerosol anyway. Let's just be honest. Masks were very ineffective on a true aerosol. It doesn't stop the spread. So because there was so much exposure in the first waves. Now, you can say, well, that's all an interesting theory to explain why the death rate in the United States is so low. What do you have to back that up, Dr. Hayden? Come on, let's just, let's just be the devil's advocate. I want show me the proof, right? Show you the proof. Let's just go over Let me hit share my screen again. Hold on. Um, You're the screen's on. Okay, let me get this one. Okay, you see this viral load? We don't see that, Mark. We okay, can we share this screen? Hold on. So sure. just do, you might just need to open up another window. Okay, hold on. I'm going to come down here to share screen. So you could stop share for a second, then share again. That's probably the best. Okay. I'll stop share for you. Yeah, we're talking again with Dr. Mark Hayden here on the COVID-19 vaccine show. And what we're seeing is the death rate numbers in the United States are not are much lower than India, than other countries, even though the highly transmissible virus is in is going right now. Okay. Yes. Now let's go through here. This is a sewer said sewer shed surveillance project. What that means is we go into the sewer systems of Missouri and we go and we look and we see where is, where is the new viral load from COVID showing up at. And as we go through here, let's just start popping some of these. We can see the real peak. Look at this peak right here. Can you see this peak where I'm, where I'm going, got my cursor? Do you see the viral? Hold on. Hold on. Let me see. I, it says I'm screen sharing. Do you see a viral load? Yes. Okay. Notice that in late November, the viral load goes sky high in the sewer systems. Yes. You see that? You see the viral load goes yes. sky high? What that meant is the virus, the coronavirus variants that were spreading at that time had very fertile, I guess that's fertile intestines to grow in. There was no immune defenses. Okay. And so they could grow there for days, weeks, and produce a lot of viral load. Now, if we look down here to July, there is a little bit of a peak in July. But what happens is it's a very short peak because I was exposed when you when you're exposed to coronavirus the first time, you don't have any immune memory, but you learn from your exposure. That means when you're exposed to your second variant, it doesn't grow as well because you suppress it with your immune system. So the viral load that comes out of your intestines during the, during the second rounds of infection are much lower because of your prior experience. So what we see here is that true viral load is much, much lower this time. 
because most of the people vaccinated and unvaccinated have already been exposed. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. Yes. So uh, what now, let's just see what, let, let's look at, uh, hold on, let's, let me go back. I'm going to, I'm going to do stop share. And then I'm going to go back to share screen and I'm going to go back to this. I'm going to hit share on that. Okay, now we're back to this. Let's go back and talk about Missouri. Okay, if we look at Missouri, here's good old Missouri. Missouri's a place that we know the Delta variant went throughout. And, and it was tracked through the sewer system all the way back in, in mid-June, early June. So we know that with that highly transmissible variant, it went throughout the state of Missouri very rapidly within just a few weeks. We know that peak death rates generally happen 17 days after exposure for somebody who is naive and never seen it before. But if you've seen it before, your, your immune system is at least partially prepared. You will have fewer symptoms or no symptoms. Right. Okay. Now let's look, let's look at, at let's see if this holds true in Missouri. Hold on, let's see. Uh, Missouri. Okay, there's Missouri right there. Okay, here we go. Now, let's look at these Missouri cases. All right, scroll that and up. You can and you can actually do this same in your same state. I'm just picking out Missouri because so much is known about it because it was a hot, hot spot for uh, Delta infections. Look at these daily new cases. Okay, now remember what I said about a case. The yeah, max you, case. The do you max think it's going to go up to the highest level that was in 2020? Let me tell you, if the, the new variant is so good at spreading, let's say we had 100 million test kits just for Missouri. Missouri's got 6 million people. So if you test every person once a day for seven days a week, you're going to go through 4 million, no, 42 million cases. Uh, I mean, test kits a week. That's a lot of test kits. Mm -hmm. Okay. But guess what? What you would find is the real number of cases in, in Missouri is not 3,000. The real number of, of cases is probably 10, 20,000 a day, maybe 30,000 a day, if you force those people to be tested. But guess what? They're asymptomatic. They're not even getting tested. Does that make sense? It makes a sense. So let's talk yes. about this. Okay, so, so, so guess let's what? Look at India. Let's look at India. That'd be okay, what's this? Case. Hold on. Now, let's look at the same death rate. Look, daily deaths in Missouri. Totally down. Totally they, down. They, they, they disappeared. So why are they saying this is so deadly, Dr. Mark? Because it's, de it's deadly to people who have no experience, who had no exposure. Now, I told y'all a very bizarre statement. And, I, you know, I hope my listeners are international people from India, from China, from Asia. And that's and I have many people that are from America that, that think in international terms. And I hope each one of y'all pray for populations that have no exposure and no immune defense. Those are the people you should pray for. Because those people have a highly transmissible variant at this point. And if they have no defense, 
they are in deep, deep trouble. I have not, from the first time I met you, I told people to get an immune defense. I told people to get an intestinal inoculation of live virus. And in fact, I told the CDC that I told the Department of Homeland Security. Unfortunately, stupidity doesn't just exist at the Department of Homeland Security. It doesn't just exist at the CDC. Stupidity exists. Well, I guess the better, more kind word is ignorance exists in North Korea and in China. China had outstanding diagnostic facilities and they would try the strict quarantine. China is getting into all sorts of problems because as the variant mutates, it becomes better and better at transmission. It is likely that their idea that they can quarantine themselves out of this will fail. They must choose a way of getting immunity and the best way of getting immunity is, as I have always said, through the intestinal tract. Okay, so we've talked about this many times. I'd like a little comparison. Look at India. Let's go to India's death rate because okay. yeah. why they had. Yeah, let's take a look at India's death rate and look at the scale and what's happened and how things have changed from when they really were hurting. So let's go. Yes. Let's go to that real quick. Okay, here's our main. Is that India? No, this, we're coming down to it. Hold on. Mark Hayden, Dr. Mark Hayden understands so much about this vaccine, the, 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 the virus, and he's predicted everything when everyone was saying it's over. Don't invest in big stadiums. Don't invest in these things because as long as there are cases and there's not enough vaccines out there. I will say this. For people who own big stadiums, what is occurring in Missouri is your best hope. And I'll tell you why. Let's say I own a big stadium right now. I can point to Missouri that the virus is being constantly transmitted, but we have a low death rate. Right. So I could say that maybe this fall, if our death rates stay real low, let's face it, everybody's had the virus. Everybody's going to keep swapping new variants, but the symptoms are going to be so low that nobody's going to die from it. So let's just go and maybe one or two people might get a cold and nobody's going to die. from it. So that argument looks much better than things looked last year for people owned stadiums. It actually looks better for people who owned cruise ships. Yes. Let's say you were taking a cruise ship and we only let people on the cruise ship who are from Missouri who have been exposed on their food and have, we know that the COVID waves have gone through all of Missouri and that when they get on the ship, they've already been exposed. The death rates on those ships is gonna be extremely low. You're gonna have low liability and you're still gonna be able to take a cruise for everybody on Missouri. Yeah, let's, so let's take a look at India real quick. Okay, hold on, let's see. Right. All right, let's see, here we go, here we go, here we go. Okay. India. And I got to go back to the day before. Yesterday. India, 38,000 cases, 411 new deaths. Okay. Now, if you'll notice, 
in the USA, we had only 49 deaths yesterday out of 35,000, uh, actually 13,000 new cases. That is um, one in, uh, it's, it's, it's a death rate of, of very, very low, the, the low, very low ratio. So um, if we look at India, they had a total of 38,000 reported cases. But see, actually the number of reported cases there, multiply that by eight. There's probably a quarter million people contacted the virus in India. Yeah, let's take a look at, can we see that graph? Let's take a look at the yes. graph for okay. India. Let's All right, here we go, go. here we go, here we, here we go. I'm interested to look at when really things were going bad for their, their second wave. Okay, look, total cases in India are flattening out. You see how this last curve yeah. starts to flatten? And if you look, look at the daily new cases. The daily new cases in India shot right through the ceiling, didn't it? And now they're peaked out. Now look, let's look at active cases. Now yeah. let's look at death rates. Daily new deaths in India down lower it's it, here it is it's not peaking up it's going so why down. it goes so high in between that time and it's not happening in the united states like that well their first wave did not spread we actually had much more spread in our environment they didn't have a sewer shed project to show where it was being spread at mm. in other words i can look at our sewer data in missouri and show that COVID in the sewer systems hit a peak last year in Missouri. It's not hitting that peak this time because most of the exposures have already happened. Okay. That's right. So, so in Missouri, there's very few, by far most of the population, including the vaccinated as well as the unvaccinated have already, have already been uh, exposed and already have some degree of immune protection. That's right. So unbelievably enough, after we kind of look at all this in, in many areas, what we have learned from this process, what we have learned is that, um, that India, uh, we're learning from all from this process is that oral inoculation is the best idea. And if there's a push for the vaccine, expect your news media to talk about this variant is deadly, look out for it, but yet we're not seeing it in the numbers. And now so- here's, Here is one of the problems, Neil. If you're running a propaganda program for the CDC and you've told all these people they were doomed if they didn't get a vaccine, and then you tell them honestly, that 80% of the people have been exposed to the new Delta variant in Missouri. And then you tell them that, well, I guess we didn't have hardly any deaths and 90, the vast majority, 90, 95% of cases are asymptomatic, more and more asymptomatic cases and fewer and fewer deaths. That makes it look like it was unnecessary to get the vaccine. Then you have to deal with, as soon as people begin to think, well, I didn't have to get the vaccine. I could have I could have used oral inoculation. Then they look at the CDC and say, why didn't you have some form of oral inoculation? Then they come up with a bunch of excuses why they chose the, the 
injections, I am instead of doing oral inoculation. This is all about CYA covering their mistakes of the past. Oral inoculation was available last year and could have been done on every American within six weeks. There was no need for this widespread pandemic. You could have inoculated everybody in the United States within two or three months. And, and, there, and everybody would have been exposed. Everybody, nobody would have had to have any lockdowns. Nobody would have had to have a loss of their civil rights. But hey, guess what? That's, that wouldn't have served the needs of the people who were in charge. You see, government, especially the government of the United States, is not about serving the people. It's about serving those who have control of government. And those are two different things. You know, you live here. I live here. We're born here. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's, it's so much better than, than banana republics in South, South America. And it's better than a lot, most, many, many, many countries abroad. But still, the government has to have an open, transparent policy that is debated publicly. They didn't debate these issues. They didn't, hey, guess what? They, they decided these deals behind closed doors where the biggest people there were the lobbyists and lawyers for the big pharma companies. That is, hey, they told your doctor not to get involved, to go home. They closed, his, they closed their practices, told them to shut up and keep their mouth shut. But you know, the doctors in your community were not stupid. They weren't dumb, they're not retarded. They should have advocated for their patients. Inoculation has been around for centuries and it was the simple, fast solution. And now they're talking about, guess what? You're gonna need a Pfizer booster. Laugh my ass off. Now, I mean, or you're gonna need a Moderna booster. Oh, Are you going to need, be needing boosters the rest of your life? Exactly. I guess Absolutely. so. Until we get yes. the oral vaccine. Yeah. So. And, and now yeah. here's, you know, Neil, the real way to test who has the best immunity is to do what I do. Inhale live virus. Yes. Okay. You know, oh, and you know why that's not done? There's an excuse for that at the CDC. Oh, we don't want to subject people to the risk of dying. No, if you believe in your product, you test at the risk of dying. Exactly. You can never eliminate all tests. Okay. You know, when does 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 Elon Musk drive a plaid Model S? He does, I'm sure, uh, because he tests his own vehicle. Risk is always present in life. We should be comparing the immunity of the different brands using live inhalation on live subjects. And if you can't find the people to do it, you need to go to your pharmaceutical, the people that made it say, hey, give us some of your pharmacy executives and let's test it on them. Okay. You know, you'll see videos with me. I test my product. I test it in repeatedly. I'm alive. I've tested it. I've inhaled many, uh, at least five, six times without masks. I was the first physician in the United States not to wear a mask deliberately around positive patients because I had already developed an immunity. Okay, so, all right. So in closing out, you always have your final say. Yeah. You know, um, my ancestors were men and women. Infectious disease and viruses we're around them all the time. 
They would see their family members get sick and die. Some of my family, family members and my ancestors had eight, nine children. And it was necessary to have that many children because so many died off before reaching productive ages. And yet, many of the things that protected them, they could not understand. They didn't even know what a virus was. The reason I'm alive today and the reason you're alive is not because we understand all the, prof the processes that affect our survival, because we don't. We're alive because God has a plan for us and a destiny for us. Every day that you have is a gift. It's a gift from God. You need to make the most of that. And you need to live each day to the max and, and, and make your days count. Because your days are numbered and my days are numbered. I won't be dying of COVID or of coronavirus because I already have immunity to the membrane protein. And the membrane protein doesn't change much regardless of the variant, the spike protein changes. I can die from a car wreck, a heart attack, a stroke. And on my appointed day to die, I'm gonna die. I accept that. But I've gotta make the most use of today and I don't wanna live in fear. Certainly you want to have immune protection from coronavirus, it cannot be stopped. It is highly transmissible and you want to have immune protection. So get exposure in the, in the form and develop an immune protection in the manner in which you will have the least side effects. And that's what I've said from the get-go. Inhaling COVID without immune protection can lead to very serious pulmonary complications, uh, long-term pulmonary disease, long-term fatigue, and a very unpleasant life. You may not die, but you may be very short of breath. Eating COVID, ingesting it orally, is an exposure that actually protects people. The World Health Organization was correct when they said that eating COVID is not dangerous, but they should have gone a step further. They should have said that eating COVID on your food is actually protects most people. They did not. They didn't want to go there because they wanted to get behind big pharma, big money, and they wanted to serve all their traditional approaches. But the most traditional approach is to use oral inoculation. Oral polio virus has worked for years. We had inoculation using live virus for measles. And in fact, we still do use a measles live virus, I believe. Yeah. And really, these things were not open. They were not dis debated nor discussed. They were rammed down the throats of the CDC in private meetings. Trump did not understand this virus. And Trump played right into the hands of, of the CDC. And Trump lost his job. He trusted the wrong people. But, you know, hey, that's not me. He had other choices and other options. Live each day like it's going to be, like it may be your last, and make your days count. You have a great day. Thank you. All right. Okay. So that was the COVID 19 vaccine show. What an amazing show. Again, make sure you like, share it, and trust me, it's going to go out everywhere, especially when Dr. Hayden ate COVID. Take care, guys. Celebrity slots. 
free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download, free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today.